This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN, 89.5 FM, Columbia. to you or good morning to you or good day to you if you may be listening over the web ex post facto so to speak this is Mike Hagan and you're listening to Radio Orbit and I'm your host every week for three hours on Monday nights from 11pm until 2 o'clock in the morning and we do this show called Radio Orbit this is the second week that we've been doing the program on Monday nights the show was uh, in a uh 
sort of a middle of the night slot on Saturday nights, early Sunday morning for about nine months from two o'clock until five o'clock in the morning. So uh, there are a lot of new people uh, that are up and about at uh, this time of the evening on Mondays that maybe uh, didn't have a chance to hear the program when it was on on Saturday. So uh, we sort of went through uh, what we do on the show last week. I'm not going to go through it again, um, but uh, you'll just get a feel for it as we get going here. But I've uh, got a pretty cool program lined up tonight. Uh, I'll be... Uh, uh, airing an interview uh, in about 55 minutes with a gentleman whose name is Dr. Rick Strassman. Dr. Strassman is the author of a book that's entitled DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Uh, DMT is the abbreviation for the chemical compound dimethyltryptamine. And the dimethyltryptamine is a very interesting compound, to say the least, and I won't go into any detail right now, but uh, you can check that out coming up in about uh, 45 or 50 minutes or so. We'll do, uh, um, uh, we've got about uh, uh, two hours uh, that we'll be spending with, with Dr. Rick Strassman. So uh, that's coming up in just a little while. Uh, big, uh, a quick thank you to Debbie, uh, Debbie Johnson with Free Range Radio Theater. Another great addition tonight. A couple of pretty poignant episodes that are sort of relevant to recent and uh, current events. I hope that uh, some of you out there who are listening to Debbie's program stick around and listen to Radio Orbit. I think our programs go pretty well together, especially tonight. And uh, so uh, give this uh, give this show a shot. Stick around for a few minutes and uh, see if it's worth listening to. Okay. All right. Uh, what else is going on? Another big quake today. Another big quake today. Holy cow. And uh, again, in the Indian Ocean, um, uh, north uh, northwestern Sumatra, and uh, this quake was um, nearly as big as the one that uh, created the tsunami that uh, left so much uh, devastation and difficulty uh, in its wake uh, back at the end of December. This was a, they keep upgrading this one. This was originally, up, uh, was originally reported as an 8.2, then it went up to an 8.5, and it's currently being re uh, reported as an 8.7 on the Richter scale. Now, uh, interestingly, there was not a uh, tsunami associated with this particular quake, luckily. And uh, it was uh, uh, centered, again, at sea. It was not centered underneath the land. So uh, even though there was a significant loss of life, and I'm sure it's ongoing, the reports, uh, the reports of these things always uh, start out slow and then build. If you remember the, uh, uh, the earthquake and tsunami that happened in December, uh, I think that the original reports were, oh, there were 500 people dead or something. Of course, now the odds are it's probably approaching a million. And um, anyway, very significant uh, geothermic uh, activity and lots of uh, volcanism and earthquake activity and uh, things really really profoundly happening in the last uh, in the last six months you know these these 8.0 plus earthquakes there have only been 16 of them in the last 10 years and uh, four of them now in the last six months so uh, you know uh, that's uh, quite a few uh, standard deviations off of uh, off of the norm and for scientists and uh, volcanologists and people that watch this sort of thing, that makes them go, hmm, oh boy. 
Now, another thing sort of interesting about this quake, and, and I'll, I'll remind everybody, uh, if, you, uh, if you're interested in all this, the best place, in my opinion, to go follow this stuff is over at Kent Stedman's site, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. He covers uh, all of this stuff really thoroughly uh, from lots of different perspectives. And uh, if you go there right now at the top of his page, he's updating hourly, and he's probably... Uh, the bleeding edge on this one. So if you're interested in following this stuff uh, in sort of real time, go over to Kent's website, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. You can always link there from my site as well at www.radioorbit.com. All right, uh, this there was something that I wanted to mention, though, I found uh, a little bit interesting, sort of an odd pattern. Uh, if you remember that uh, the tsunami and or the earthquake and resulting tsunami that happened um, in December happened on December 26th. That was the day after Christmas. Uh, now, um, March uh, on the 28th of March, one day after Easter, we have uh, another quake. And uh, there's one other... So uh, anyway, it's sort of an interesting coincidence. And of course, I don't believe in coincidence. So... Uh, who knows? Uh, also, if you remember, uh, we found out in January that there was a gamma ray burst that was uh, associated in the same time frame as the earthquake and tsunami. And again, uh, today, the BAT, the what, uh, what we call the BAT, V-A-T, it stands for Burst Alert Telescope. And uh, this is a scope that is uh, orbiting the planet and looking for... Uh, gamma ray bursts and galactic core explosions and this sort of thing out there in in uh, in deep space and again uh, yesterday a gamma ray burst uh, detected and these are not uh, common occurrences so we have two big time earthquakes uh, and we had and the one that happened actually the precursor to the December quake, quake that happened like on December oh it happened a couple of weeks before I want to say around December 10th or so there was a gamma ray burst uh, that was uh, in the same time frame as that one as well so that's something that's really interesting and if if you uh, if you if you're new to the program or this information and you think what the hell is he talking about gamma ray burst and all that, go uh, onto my website and go to the archives and uh, page down until you find an interview that I did with Dr. Paul LaViolette. Uh, Dr. LaViolette is a Ph.D. astrophysicist, and uh, uh, one of his, um, in fact, the, uh, uh, his thesis that he received his Ph.D. for um, uh, involved a theory that, uh, uh, that is wrapped around this idea of gamma ray bursts and galactic uh, galactic core explosion so uh, it's a little bit uh, intense but uh, it's really relevant uh, perhaps so it's something you might want to check out alright so um, coming up we've got uh, Dr. Rick Strassman and uh, that's going to be a great uh, uh, bunch of information that's coming out to everybody I, he hasn't been interviewed uh, um, certainly not uh, at length he may have had uh, ten minutes here or five minutes there on uh, uh, some other programs, but uh, he hasn't had the chance to uh, to really lay it out like you guys are going to hear tonight. So stick around. That's coming up. Um, space weather coming up in just a few minutes. But uh, let me give out contact information real fast. Hello to everybody listening locally. Um, any new listeners, I appreciate it. 
once we get this interview going, you can give me a call at uh, 573-874-5676. Let me know what you think. Uh, let's see what else here. Um, if you're listening over the web, of course, uh, all these programs are archived on the web. You can't hear it live yet. We're not streaming yet, but we're working on that. And uh, in the meantime, you can hear all this stuff uh, ex post facto uh, over the web if you go to my archives page. Okay, so thanks for all the emails that you guys always send. And... Um, uh, I appreciate it, okay? To continue that, uh, if you ever have anything you'd like to uh, talk to me about, to send me uh, questions, comments, concerns, ideas for programs, if you want to tell me that uh, uh, the show's no good or that you like it, whatever, uh, you can do that at orbitradio at AOL.com, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. And you can also always go to the website, www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. And the phone number here at the station, like I said, is 874-5676. Or if you're outside of the 573 area code, it's 1-800-895-5676, 1-800-895-KOPN. All right, uh, somebody is... Uh, calling me on the phone here so I'm going to play a tune real fast and then uh, we'll get back and do space weather in a minute in the meantime this is Chris Cornell from Euphoria Morning this is called Moonchild this is Mike Hagen you're listening to Radio Orbit and we'll be back in a few minutes Chris Cornell from Euphoria Morning. That's called Moonchild. All right, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. A couple things real fast here. Uh, we got Rick Strassman coming up in just a few minutes. In the meantime, let me tell you a quick thing about some guests that are coming up. Uh, last week, uh, of course, was the inaugural Monday night show here, and I uh, appreciate everybody that was listening and that called in and sent me emails. Uh, next week, uh, tribute to Terrence McKenna. Uh, again, if you've listened to the program before, you know that uh, Terrence was a big influence on me. And he died uh, just about five years ago next Monday. Actually, he died on the 3rd of April in the year 2000. And it'll be the 4th of April next Monday. So I'm going to do a little tribute to Terrence next week. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do, but it'll be cool. And I'm sure that uh, if you appreciate this interview tonight, you'll probably uh, appreciate the show next week as well. All right, the following week after that will be Richard K. Moore. Uh, Richard, this, this is going to be sort of a departure for me. Richard K. Moore is sort of a social commentarian, an historian, and uh, has a lot to say about geopolitical events. And I, for the most part, stick away from uh, or, or try to stay away from uh, the political arena for the most part. Um, but uh, with RKM... I just had to do it, and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. But it's certainly going to ruffle some feathers when I talk to Richard K. Moore. Uh, he's in um, in Ireland. That'll be a live show, uh, live from Ireland. And I think he's in, I'm not sure if he's in Dublin uh, or where exactly he's at. I'll find, obviously I'll find out before we do the show. But uh, um, there's uh, probably a reason why he's living there and not here. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that, and that should be a pretty interesting program, and hopefully I don't uh, uh, get uh, in any trouble be by guilt by association or anything like that. So at any rate, Richard K. Moore coming up in a couple weeks. After that, uh, Dr. Terry Grossman. Uh, Dr. Grossman has written a book with Ray Kurzweil. Some people may be familiar with Ray Kurzweil. He's an incredible scientist and a futurist and an inventor, and uh, um, 
the two of them wrote a book together called Fantastic Voyage, Living Long Enough to Live Forever. And this book is astounding uh, because one of the things that they delve deeply into are new technologies that are becoming available very, very quickly uh, that are uh, potentially uh, have the ability to obsolete illness and disability as we know it. And I mean that in a general sense. Uh, they're really talking about some, uh, some outrageous stuff here uh, that involves nanotechnology and some other things. But the book basically says uh, live long enough to live forever. And they're saying you don't have to live a whole lot longer uh, before uh, some real amazing things are going to become possible. So anyway, Dr. Terry Grossman, that's coming up in a few weeks. Uh, Dr. Michael Heisen, my buddy out in uh, Hawaii, who's a marine biologist and works with dolphins and whales. Stephen Buhner, The Lost Language of Plants, uh, The Secret Teachings of Plants, an incredible ethnobotanist uh, who I have been fortunate enough to get to know and become friends with. Uh, he'll be on the air here in a few weeks. Uh, John Lash, a gentleman who uh, studies Gnostic texts and early Christian uh, writings and reads fluent Coptic and it's a very interesting guy he talks about Gnosticism and the Archons and alchemy and the relationship between shamanism and all these things and a real interesting guy and man do I have a story to tell you guys about John Lash you're not going to believe it I'm going to I'll tell you at the end of the hour here it sort of sets up uh, the interview coming up but I have a couple of stories of amazing synchronicity that have happened in the last week and uh, I'm going to mention those uh, at the end of the hour here, okay? Okay, let's do space weather real fast. And um, not a whole lot to mention, although there is a lovely sort of waning uh, full moon rising in the east. I don't know if you have a chance to look out your windows or step outside, but uh, just a beautiful, big, orange, not quite full. It was full just a few days ago, but uh, a beautiful moon nonetheless rising this evening in the east. So you can go outside and take a look at that right now and take a deep breath and... Uh, just chill out and appreciate it for what it is, all right? Not a whole lot else going on. You know, we talk about the sun quite a bit on this program, and it's interesting when I do space weather, uh, for people who haven't listened to the program for a long time, we haven't had a lot to talk about in the last few weeks, and these things are really sort of cyclical. It's interesting because when it gets interesting, it's really interesting. Uh, and then when it gets quiet, it just sort of stays uh, quiet for a little while. And for the last three weeks or so, there's been very little activity on the sun, uh, no significant flare activity or uh, oh no uh, coronal mass ejections or no big coronal holes speeding up the solar wind or anything real uh, interesting happening so uh, that's kind of good though I guess it's just old soul just burning away up there keeping the planet warm and warming things up as springtime rolls around here you'll notice that it's starting to get uh, starting to get light out a little bit earlier in the morning and uh, staying lighter for a longer time in the evening of course that happens ever since the 21st of March we start having these longer days after the equinox and that'll peak on the 21st of June or thereabouts uh, on the summer solstice and uh, cool stuff alright uh, there is one thing that I'd like to mention though that I saw the other day there's a thing that's called a sun pillar and you may have seen this and I thought I'd mention it uh, just because it's kind of interesting every once in a while when you get sort of like ice um, crystals uh, that are, that are uh, 
suspended in the atmosphere, depending on where they are in position to the rising or the setting sun, if they're in the right position above or below the sun, you can get this uh, sort of uh, uh, reflective imagery effect that they call a sun pillar or a sun column. And uh, I actually saw that uh, a couple of times in the last few weeks. And in the springtime and in the fall, you get a little bit more of that because you get these... Uh, uh, these mornings and evenings where we get a lot of ice crystals that uh, that form in the right part of the atmosphere uh, to allow this effect. So if you see that, uh, uh, there you go. There's another bit of valuable information, and now you'll know exactly what you're looking at next time the sun throws out a sword of light, either above or below it. Now, if it's going up uh, from the horizon toward the sun, or from the sun down toward the horizon, then that's because the ice crystals are above uh, relatively speaking, above your plane, above your field of vision. And if, if, the, uh, if the pillar goes upward from the sun up towards the sky, uh, it'll be the opposite effect. Those crystals in the atmosphere will be below, relatively speaking, your position to the sun. So, um, all right, so that's what sun pillars are. And uh, one last thing, potentially hazardous asteroids. You know, we talk about uh, near-Earth asteroids, near-Earth ob objects, potentially hazardous objects that might have a chance to impact our planet or come close and affect the gravitational pull of the Earth and the Moon and uh, change the dynamics between all of these bodies, which really do have sort of a precarious balance uh, and equilibrium that they uh, that they exhibit. You know, it's it, it really is a wonderful uh, uh, a wonderful system. Uh, when you look at it, the whole thing. You know, you have these wheels within wheels revolving around one another and every once in a while though you'll get a cosmic interloper of sorts that comes in and really shakes up the apple cart and throws things into disequilibrium and makes things sort of chaotic for a while and sometimes that's not all bad you know, we have this idea that chaos is bad, but, you know, historically, chaos was never considered bad. It was just considered sort of chaos. But we tend to put this idea that chaos is bad, and uh, we have to keep chaos at bay and keep, keep chaos away, and we have to have control and control and control. Well, when you see things like these earthquakes and uh, other uh, events of the natural world, when Mother Nature bears her teeth so to speak, the uh, the control freaks shudder <laughs> because that's when the that's when the curtain is pulled back and we see who's really in charge of the show. So uh, keep that in mind uh, when you're looking around the world and when you're looking up at the sky and up at the stars and up at the sun and at the guy next to you on the bus. All right, uh, but. Uh, Potentially hazardous asteroids, it's interesting because I always look at these things and they have a list that they update regularly. And interestingly enough, uh, last week, there are, two items on the, there are two items on the list from last week, or that dated last week, March 18th and March 19th, uh, and they're on my list today. Interestingly enough, they were not on the list last week. <laughs> so what does that tell you? That tells you that they didn't know about them. And they went by us, and they spotted us, or they spotted them as they went by, and then they added them to the list this week uh, in uh, sort of uh, 
a backward reference, posthumously, so to speak. Now, next year or the next time they orbit, they'll know where they are. Um, but as I say uh, all the time, the ones uh, that we don't know about are the ones that are probably more concerning than the ones that we do know about. And uh, all the time, there are ones that are whizzing by us. Uh, these two uh, that went by on March 18th and March 19th, one of them was only a half a lunar distance away from the planet. Do you realize what that means? That's inside the orbit of the moon. The moon is 250,000 miles away from the Earth, plus or minus. This uh, asteroid 2005 FN on March 18th passed 0.4 lunar distances from our planet, which means four-tenths of the distance between the Earth and the moon. So uh, that's about 100,000 miles. Now, we have airplanes. We have... Uh, uh, spy planes and all kinds of uh, uh, craft that are up at these uh, at these levels. You know, we've got all kinds of satellites. We've got all kinds of uh, uh, classified platforms up there. And uh, you know, the SOHO satellite is a million miles out. So. These things are coming real close. This thing came really, really close, relatively speaking. And uh, it was one that before it came by, nobody knew about it because it came by last week and it wasn't on my list. And if it wasn't on my list, well, they may have known about it, but they certainly weren't telling us about it. So anyway, we'll keep an eye on that stuff. Keep your eye on the skies. And if you see a big rock uh, bearing down on us, you know, just uh, have a cocktail and kiss your lady and enjoy the rest of the evening. All right, we'll be back in a few minutes. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and uh, this is Soul Coughing. Speaking of this, uh, I, I chose this song. It's called Black uh, Unmarked Helicopters, and I should mention real fast, uh, there's some weird, weird stuff going on in India, and I've mentioned it before, but the India Daily, which is the second largest newspaper in the country, a country of 1.2 billion people, they have been writing openly now for months about uh, contact with extraterrestrials. And uh, they're writing about it every day in the paper. And I'm going to read uh, a couple clips uh, from the India Daily, uh, maybe after this song. All right, back in a minute. This is uh, Soul Coughing, Unmarked Helicopters on Radio Orbit. Soul coughing and uh, from uh, songs in the key of X, and uh, for all of you out there, pray to the compact disc gods that we don't have a bunch of skipping going on. We've been having a little bit of technical difficulty for the last week or so with both of our CD players, and some people have had better luck than others. Uh, and uh, let's hope that. Uh, that we do okay tonight. That one was sort of sketchy. Made it through, but uh, if you were listening close, you were probably like, hmm, was that supposed to be there? I don't think so. Anyway, all right, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. 
And uh, I wanted to mention real fast the stuff that's going down in India. Uh, let's see. Here's one story that I'll re- read real fast. I could pick from a bunch of them. This is just this is from today though. Uh, this one says. Uh, oceanographers and naval engineers and again this is from the India Daily all right this is from if not the largest I, the, the the India Times and the India Daily between the two of them they're both sort of uh, rivals but they're they're both big giant newspapers they're the two largest newspapers in India so this is from the India Daily today oceanographers and naval engineers are investigating certain phenomena that show evidence of the presence of extraterrestrial deep underwater craft the floating version of UFOs. These crafts are capable of sharp and efficient maneuvering underwater, have the implacable stealth to avoid detection, can hover in the deepest parts of the oceans, and are capable of going deep into the tectonic plate levels under the ocean. Now, we've had some big earthquakes in the Indian Ocean in the last few months. Just add that as an aside. Uh, The scientists and engineers are finding solid evidence that these craft are present in many numbers under our oceans, though undetected and invisible to regular human eyes. An an electromagnetic flux also surrounds them, and sharks, dolphins, and whales avoid these zones due to interference in their own electromagnetic sensors. There are not many sightings of these craft, as very few people really dive into the depths of the ocean, which is really unexplored. A computer model has recently revealed the possible propulsion systems. The same anti-gravity principles apply through the model, be, uh, though the model becomes much, much more complex due to buoyancy and other aquatic issues. So, anyway, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't write this. Um, I'm just reading it, and uh, I'm just telling you what it says, and it's coming, again, it's not coming from some uh, uh, some New Age uh, publications coming from one of the largest newspapers in India. And uh, here's another... Uh, a story from uh, a week ago. This one says, uh, Countryside village residents near Bhualpat in West Bengal are reporting strange activities in the sky surrounding the Nobel laureate Rabindranath Tagore's Heaven of Culture and Arts, the Vishwabharati University in Shankinikatan. According to poor villagers, there are gods from heavens who really... <laughs> who really like to understand the world's most sophisticated and advanced culture of arts and literature. UFO sightings, presence of the aliens in the areas being reported. According to sources, the university is tight-lipped about anything. However, it seems something is going on, uh, especially in the Indochina Cultural Center. And uh, this goes on to talk more about that. But if you go, again, um, there are a couple places that this sort of uh, this information has been uh, sort of compiled. You can either go over to my friend Kent Stedman's website at cyberspaceorbit.com, but a better place might, for this India stuff might be to go over to Jeff Rents' site, uh, www.rentse.com. And uh, Jeff has sort of uh, got a bunch of these India stories for over the last few months and got them all in one place. And you can see uh, who's writing them and what they're about. But anyway, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but pretty interesting stuff nonetheless. Uh, Okay, um, two weird stories that happened in the last week. If you were listening to the program last week, you heard uh, toward the beginning of the show there was a gentleman uh, named Bob who called from Jefferson City, and he mentioned a book, and we discussed it briefly because I wasn't very familiar with the concept at the time, uh, a book by a gentleman whose name was Julian Jaynes, and the book was called uh, The Origin of Consciousness, in the breakdown of the bicameral mind. It's sort of a mouthful there, but uh, anyway, Julian Jaynes died in 1996, I want to say, 
Um, but the book was written in 1976, and uh, very little was uh, there was sort of some fringe discussion about it and stuff. But 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 uh, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists and all these guys they really didn't know what to make of him or what to make of it. It was very difficult to refute. And there were no. I agree with what Bob had said, and I haven't done a whole lot of research on it yet. But it doesn't appear that there was any obvious refutation uh, refutation of the things that he was saying. And um, uh, the simple fact is that he basically said that consciousness came to the human species much more uh, frequent or much more uh, uh, closer in time. In the in the in the near past than than what is typically believed, uh, Jaynes made the argument that consciousness came to the human species no more than maybe three or four thousand years ago, uh, toward the end of the second millennium B.C. Now this is thousands and thousands of years uh, later than uh, than the standard models sort of predict. So real interesting stuff. And uh, anyway, it's a pretty obscure book and a pretty obscure guy that not a lot of people know about. So anyway. Uh, so Bob and I were talking about it. Then, of course, Deborah called in and said, uh, and she was familiar with it as well, and uh, um, we chatted with her a little bit about it. She was familiar with James and, in particular, the spelling of his name and uh, uh, the book in general, uh, which I just bought, actually. I just found a copy of it on the web, uh, a used copy, really cheap, actually. It's amazing how sometimes the most best little treasures out there you can find for uh, not a whole lot of money, and you just need to know where to look. At any rate, uh, so I got the book and it's on my uh, on the way to me, and and we're probably going to have a discussion about that uh, that topic once I get up to speed on it. And uh, Bob, if you're out there, I'm sort of curious if 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 Jane's had any uh, proteges, if he was mentoring anybody, if there was anybody that sort of took up his work uh, after he left us. If that's the case, I'd love to find out who he or she might be. Uh, who they might be, and uh, they might be somebody that we that we might approach to uh, to join us in a conversation about this stuff. So, okay. So anyway, so Bob calls, then Deb calls about the same thing. Then another guy calls uh, in the studio line, not on the air. Uh, he happened to be listening for the first time last Monday night. Never heard the program before. He had a copy of the book. He couldn't believe that we had brought it up, and that's the only reason that he called because he said I've never heard anybody talk about it before. So. Three people in this little community of ours uh, came up with this obscure reference of Julian Jaynes in this book about the origin of consciousness uh, that he wrote 30 years ago. So anyway, fast forward to uh, the following Friday, a couple days ago. I was down at Mojo's doing a... Um, uh, uh, working on a show for KOPN. There was a band down there called the Asylum Street Spankers. And don't judge that book by its cover. They were awesome. It was an incredible show and uh, a show that probably anybody could enjoy. It was very difficult to describe what they do, but it was really cool. And um, if they come back to town, I'd advise anyone to go check them out. It was real cool stuff. Uh, anyway, so I'm there uh, watching the Asylum Street Spankers, and I see this guy across the bar at Mojo's. And he has sort of a white beard and... Uh, 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 sort of an academic-looking fella, and uh, uh, at any rate, he reminded me identically of Dr. Ralph Abraham, who is another one of my favorites, and and uh, he's a mathematician and a, uh, a chaos theorist, among other things. But um, uh, Ralph Abraham is another one of these outrageously cool thinkers who um, has been doing this stuff again for 30 years or so, and the guy looked just like Ralph Abraham. 
And I actually thought in the darkness, in the dimly lit uh, confines of Mojo's, I actually thought it might have been him. I thought, ah, you know, there's probably an argument. There's, there's a chance that Ralph Abraham could be here. You know, maybe he had something going on at Missouri. So anyway, so I, so I go over there. And, uh, and, he, and Abraham uh, went to Princeton. He was a professor at Princeton at the age of 23. So anyway, so I go up to this guy. And uh, before I say anything to him, I, say, well, I basically said, excuse me, I, I apologize to interrupt. And he stops me and he says, let me guess, uh, Jerry Garcia or Elliot Gould? And uh, I said, no, no, Ralph Abraham, Dr. Ralph Abraham. And he said, who? <laughs> and I said, ah, oh, this, this guy. And I, he said, who is he? And I said, yeah, he's, a, he's a chaos theorist, a Ph.D. mathematician that works at Santa Clara University. Santa Cruz uh, University. Um, I said, but uh, but he was a professor at Princeton for a long time. And the guy says to me, and I swear to God, he says, Princeton? He says, when I think of Princeton, I think of Julian Jaynes. This is what the, that's where Julian Jaynes worked, did his work. Can you believe this? So, anyway, I end up having a fascinating conversation with this guy, and I won't mention what his name is, but he's a professor here at... at, uh, uh, at the University of Missouri, a Ph.D. Uh, in the uh, psych department. So anyway, I mean, these things just keep popping up one after another. And for me, uh, for you people out there who believe in the stochastic randomness of life and uh, the idea that, uh, that this is just some sort of a random walk, well, when, when we go to this interview, maybe you could give me a call and explain to me the purely non-random nature of my life, okay? Because it is as improbable as the Big Bang, the things that have been happening to me recently. So uh, there's one other story that I should probably tell. Um, and I'm trying to decide if I should play a song. No, I think I'm going to tell this story real fast. And this is another mind-bender. Uh, and it's relevant to a guest that's going to be coming up. And the guy's name is John Lash, and he's really not the center of this story, uh, although I am going to do a show with him. But this is what happened. I have a friend out in uh, Washington, in uh, Maryland, actually, and she's in the intelligence community. And I won't say too much more about her, but she works in infectious disease, in uh, biowarfare. And she was a nurse prior to 9-11, uh, with expertise in infectious disease and after 9-11 she was recruited uh, by the intelligence community to help out uh, with uh, uh, some of these issues especially after the anthrax um, events took place in October of 2001 and uh, she was recruited because she has expertise in this sort of thing so at any rate uh, I trust her when she calls me and tells me things so she called me and we talked and she said, hey, I heard this guy, his name is John Lash, you need to get a hold of him, you need to interview him. So I said, okay. So uh, I got on the web and I tried to track him down and I found a website called uh, MetaHistory, www.metahistory.org. And this is where he posts most of his work and research. So I go to metahistory.org and I go to the contact page, which is, which is typical. Uh, the way I usually approach guests uh, for the first time is I try to find a, uh, an email address or something for them. I, I usually email them a sort of a, 
personalized letter that invites them to be on the show and try try to tell them, you know, why I'd like to have them on the program and why they might want to be on the program. And uh, normally, um, uh, normally we would have a conversation back and forth over email, uh, back and forth a couple of times before. Uh, they might give me their telephone number, and then I contact them. Now, I put my phone number on all of these correspondences. So, at any rate, uh, I go to the contact page, and I can't get a hold directly of John Lash. But there's a woman who is sort of a liaison, and uh, her name is uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith. And uh, for some of you out there, that name may ring a bell. It rung a bell with me, but uh, not strong enough at first and you'll understand why I say that in a minute. But at any rate, uh, I figured, okay, well, I'll just send this Joanna an email, and uh, hopefully I can get to John through her. So I did that. I sent her an email and said, I want, an I, I want to interview John Lash. Well, within about 15 minutes, my phone rings. This was, this was on Friday. This was just this last Friday. This is the same day that I run into Ralph Abraham lookalike at Mojo's. Earlier in the day, this happened. Um, it's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon and my phone rings. Now, I've done interviews on this program now going on 10 months, and I've interviewed 30 or 40 different people. And not one time has anybody called me on the telephone after my initial email. Not once. I've always made the first phone call to them, and it's always been after a series of emails and after they've provided me with their telephone number. So, at any rate, I send this email to Joanne Smith, and within 15 minutes, my phone rings, and I answer it, and it's her. And it's a real strange number. It's a real long number that I'm seeing on my cell phone, so I realized that it was an international call. And it turns out that she was calling me from Spain, you know, the southern part of Spain. And uh, she told me that she had received my email, and she wanted to talk with me and uh, about, about it and why I wanted to talk to John. And we had a conversation for a few minutes, and she was sort of checking me out, you know, just to see what I was about and whether she should, uh, you know, whether she should pass this information on to John or not, uh, whether I was worth her while, uh, whether uh, worth her while or not. So anyway, she, we start talking, and we get sort of comfortable with one another, and, and it's cool. And she says, okay, well, great. You know, I think this will work out. You know, you understand the subject matter and blah 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 and uh, you guys could probably have an interesting conversation and I'll put John in touch with you and I said well what, you know, great thank you I, I appreciate it and goodbye now when I hung up the phone I was thinking who was this woman because she really really struck me when I was on the phone with her and something had sort of tweaked in my mind um, right at the beginning uh, of the conversation and, and when I went right before I sent the email to her, but, I, but it wasn't strong enough for me to really do anything about it. Uh, anyway, so after the phone call, I decide to, and I get on the web, and I go put in Joanne Harcoat Smith into the website uh, or into the search engine. And, of course, she is the former wife of Timothy Leary. So, and, of course, to me, this is like, you know, a, a profound experience um, for somebody with my background and my history and my interest in the, in the subject matter that, that, that they were so influential in. So anyway, so I called her back, and I left a message on her voicemail and said, hey, uh, you know, I neglected to mention something. I didn't quite put together uh, who you were <laughs> when I talked to you the first time, and it sort of came to me after I hung up. 
And I said, I'd really like to talk to you about something. And anyway, so she called me back within another 15 minutes or so. And uh, we had a real long conversation about Tim and about Terrence and, uh, and about Dennis and about John, this, uh, uh, her new uh, research associate. And let me tell you something. It is going to be an incredible conversation when I do this show with John Lash. He's actually in Belgium. Uh, but uh, he, is, uh, he is something else, and so is she. And by the end of our conversation, I wanted to talk to her more than I wanted to talk to John. And uh, so now we're going to have to try to set that up with both of them. So uh, anyway, really, really interesting, amazing stuff that's happening to me. And it's not without reason. It's not without uh, cause. And um, these are signposts on the road. And when you see these things... When they happen in your life, just like they happen in my life, there are things to pay attention to and to recognize. And sometimes the signposts have nasty uh, messages on them, and sometimes they have good messages on them. But uh, regardless, you should be paying attention to those signs. And uh, I'll tell you what, I am sure paying attention these days because uh, the signs are coming and they are, they are coming hot and heavy. All right, we are going to uh, take a quick black, uh, a quick break here, and come back with uh, with an interview with Dr. Rick Strassman, the author of DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Okay. Uh, this is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. It's listener-sponsored community radio. And you can tell it's listener-sponsored, listener-supported, because of the level of technology here. And you can hear my CD player skipping on me. And that's why we had to switch off of that uh, Foo Fighter song and into Alice in Chains, which actually worked out okay. But uh, at any rate, we're having a little trouble with the CD players tonight, so bear with me. We won't hear too much music as we get into this interview here, and we're going to get going with that in just a minute. But uh just want to do the top of the hour, say hello to everybody. In a minute, uh, you'll be listening to an interview with Dr. Rick Strassman, the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule. It's a, uh, a tape that... Uh, Actually, an interview that's on tape, I'll be airing it. I recorded it just a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Strassman didn't want to do a late-night interview. I wanted to record it during the day, so we did that. Anyway, that's coming up in just a minute here, okay? And uh, in the meantime, if anybody has any uh, uh, thing they want to tell me, uh, once I get going with this interview, I'll have plenty of time to chat on the phone, so you can call me here at uh, area code 573-874-5676. That's... 874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676, 1-800-895-KOPN. And uh, one last thing, uh, 
Oh, let's see, not the first person, but maybe the second person to give me a call um, during the first segment of this interview. I'll give you a, a, an autographed copy of, uh, uh, of Dr. Strassman's book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. All right, enjoy this. Uh, I'll be back in about uh, 20 minutes or so to uh, say hi and to uh, play a little music, and we'll be going now until 2 o'clock with this interview. So enjoy it. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Welcome back to Radio Orbit. I'm Mike Hagan, your host as always, and tonight my guest is Dr. Rick Strassman. Dr. Strassman is the author of a book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And anybody who listens to this program knows that DMT is a, uh, a topic and a subject that I'm quite interested in. It's a uh, very fascinating and mysterious um, molecular compound, and Dr. Strassman is one of the few researchers in the country that has been able to go back and uh, begin to delve a little bit deeper into uh, scientific and medical research into this particular compound, and uh, we're lucky to have uh, Dr. Strassman here to talk to us, uh, so going to be an interesting conversation, and uh, without further delay, here he is, the, uh, the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, Dr. Rick Strassman. Thanks very much for being with us, Dr. Strassman. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm uh, real pleased that I was able to get in touch with you and we're able to do this. This is a real important subject, as I mentioned to you before, and I'm uh, really trying to help uh, do my part to get some of this information disseminated out there in the public, and you've obviously done uh, done your part as well. So why don't we start there, actually. What, um, uh, what sort of interesting background did Dr. Rick Strassman have that led him to uh, eventually become interested in, in uh, research into a, a psychoactive compound such as uh, dimethyltryptamine? Oh, I think as with any uh, sort of fringe career um, project, it has its roots in childhood. And uh, in the case... Um, in my childhood, I was quite fascinated with uh, chemistry and especially making fireworks. I, um, I don't think I talk about this much in the book, um, but uh, yeah, I used to really like making bombs and fireworks, explosives, <laughs> things that uh, were bright and lit and colorful. Okay. Um, you know, that really kind of uh, grabbed one's attention, I suppose. Right. And uh, then. Uh, I began as a chemistry major in college, but uh, no one thought that was going to be very viable. And unfortunately, you know, as I get older and look back upon various turns one's you know life makes, um, I often do wonder what would have happened if I had stayed as a chemistry major and developed a line of fireworks or designer fireworks, as as you will. Um, but um, after a little bit of time, I switched into uh, 
the field of biology and applied to medical school. Um, and uh, was most interested, obviously, <clears throat> um, in the field of psychiatry uh, because uh, it would be um, an area in which I could study psychedelic drugs, which I had actually become uh, very interested in, in in college and undergraduate work. Um, the interest in psychedelics was, uh, oh, I guess, inspired by reports of all my friends who were taking these drugs, talking about things that uh, sounded quite a bit like uh, states of deep meditation or contemplation. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I had uh, started doing a little bit of meditation and was uh, quite uh, interested in how profound, um, how, what a profound change in consciousness could occur just from applying one's attention in a different way. Sure. Um, but the reports of deep meditation and deep... And deep uh, trips on psychedelic drugs really started to sound more and more similar to me. Hmm. Um, and I began uh, thinking, well, maybe there's something in the brain like a psychedelic that uh, is involved in um, deep meditation. And then my thinking started to branch out a bit into uh, some of the near-death experience um, reports that people were giving at that time also sounded uh, as if it were induced by a psychedelic drug. Um, so I started looking for um, uh, the possibility of a psychedelic drug that existed naturally in the brain. And uh, going through previous articles, other people's work, uh, it seemed as if uh, the most likely candidate was something like DMT, uh, which is uh, it's, it's, it's a chemical cousin of serotonin. It's also... It's also actually uh, quite closely related to the hormone called melatonin, um, which comes from the pineal gland, which uh, was sort of where I began my focus on a biological sort of basis for mystical experience. Um, I performed some actual clinical studies with uh, the drug called melatonin, the, the pineal hormone. Mm -hmm. um, I did some clinical research in, uh, in uh, under trying to understand the physiology of melatonin um, and also its um, psychological effects. I thought if melatonin was a profoundly psychedelic compound that uh, it might be the naturally occurring uh, mystical producing sort of chemical mm -hmm. in the brain uh, that, that might be involved in meditative states at, at the very least, but then some of the more full-blown uh, meditative or, I guess, naturally occurring states that resemble that brought on by um, psychedelics. Um, even such things as uh, um, the you know the experience of um, psychosis, which has a lot of psychedelic features as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We can talk about that. Um, well, I gave a lot of melatonin to a lot of people, and uh, it didn't really have much in the way of psychedelic effects. So uh, I turned my uh, I, I turned my attention to DMT, which uh, I didn't actually begin with because it was a psychedelic and it would be a lot more controversial than studying melatonin. Mm -hmm. uh, but after melatonin turned out not to have much in the way of, I guess, what what, what might call spiritual properties, right. um, I um, decided to uh, see if I could give DMT to people. Uh, it, it, it is a Schedule One drug and uh, it hadn't been... Uh, 
studied in humans in quite a long time, 20, 30 years or so. So uh, I knew um, by the time, well, at the time I embarked upon the, um, the, the, um, the actual clinical research with DMT, I knew it was going to be a long road to uh, get final approval. But anyway, um, that's kind of uh, the lead-up to the beginning of the DMT research. Okay. Um, you, men- you mentioned that, uh, er- that early on you had seen sort of a, uh, a correlation between the deep meditative states and some of these uh, uh, stories and uh, descriptions you had heard of psychedelic experiences. Now, the, my listeners are, g- are going to want me to ask you, so at, this, at that point, were you able to make... Uh, uh, a comparison yourself in other words were you familiar personally with the psychedelic experience or were you um, uh, were, were you just taking uh, reports and, and indications from others that you had spoken with oh uh, it was in you know talking to my friends uh, okay. uh, 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 um, I think I had quite a uh, quite a healthy respect for uh, how intense some of these uh, experiences seem to be mm-hmm. um, so I just uh, more or less was a second hand observer as it were okay alright um, now there's one other thing I wanted to mention real fast now uh, before we get a little bit further uh, into this and uh, actually the fact that you mentioned psychology early on um, is uh, sort of a, a reasonable segue to this but I wanted to uh, commend you first of all on something uh, early on in the book you make a reference to the Hippocratic Oath and and uh, and simply uh, make that statement that your first and foremost responsibility is to do no harm and I think that that was a uh, wonderful that you actually included that in the book because um, we do know that uh, in the past there have been some rather odious and nefarious uses of some of these substances and some some uh, some research that's been done uh, in in less uh, than uh, than real um, uh, ethical manner. So I, I just wanted to say thanks for putting that in there because I think it is important to recognize um, that uh, that you recognize that as well. Yeah, it's a you know it's a slippery slope though with these drugs. Um, the amount of of uh, um, the amount of power that you are kind of holding um, with regard to um, with regard to the people that you're working with in this field, it's a tremendous amount of power, hmm. um, and uh, it's very easy to uh, to slip up in terms of one's approach or one's feeling about the, I guess the relationship between the state and your volunteer and who you are as a person. Right. So I think they really can become tied up with each other. And, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that occurs, you know, in that kind of uh, clinical research environment uh, is uh, a very strong attachment, a very strong bonding uh, between the volunteer and the person who's giving the substances. Sure, I imagine. And so um, it's really difficult, or you really have to keep an eye on being careful uh, um, to not identify uh, with what they're projecting onto you. I mean, it might be partially true, but uh, mostly it's the drugs. And um, I think uh, you have to be careful to not buy into the aggrandizement and the, the tremendous uh, power that uh, these drugs have with, uh, with one's own personal qualities. Right, right, right. You know, there has to be an inherent uh, respect 
uh, in, involved for sure. Okay. All right. Hey, let's uh, let's talk real fast um, a little bit about the pharmacology, a little bit about the uh, about the molecular structure and this sort of thing. I know that uh, the DMT is actually a pretty simple molecule. It's not very sophisticated. It doesn't have a real high molecular weight um, compared to some of the other uh, in, uh, endogenous uh, compounds that are found in the human body. But I had a question for you um, regarding its relationship to, to uh, uh, psilocin or, or psilocybin. I know that I think, I think there's only one oxygen uh, molecule or an, one oxygen atom away uh, from between those two and and the fact that one of them is orally active and the other one is not um, it just is a big question mark in my mind and I wanted to ask you is there what what does that extra oxygen atom do oh I think it you know is involved in allowing it to become orally active mm -hmm. uh, that's the main problem with with swallowing DMT just by itself is that it's not orally active you can eat grams and grams of it and not very much happens but um, you know with uh, that compound you were mentioning called psilocybin uh, um, it's uh, found in magic mushrooms and as we all know um, it's very simple just to eat or swallow magic mushrooms um, the active ingredients are absorbed, quick, uh, are absorbed quickly and easily through the stomach um, but it also uh, sort of ties into this compound which is called ayahuasca or it's not necessarily a compound yeah, it's, it's a brew it's compounded yeah, yeah a combinatory uh, concoction that they make down there in the Amazon yeah uh, yeah it's very popular in the Amazon and uh, uh, it's making inroads um, in, in to the west as well in Europe and mm -hmm. in North America um, and it's a combination of two plants one plant contains DMT and the other contains a plant containing an MAO inhibitor. Uh -huh. uh, and MAO inhibitors will slow down the breakdown of DMT in the stomach and uh, allow it to be... Uh, and um, the MAO inhibitors will allow the DMT to become orally active. And that's uh, the way that these um, tribesmen in Latin America, these indigenous people, um, were able to activate uh, the DMT found in uh, one plant by combining it with a plant that would make it orally active. It's quite a quite a feat of uh, empirical uh, pharmacology, as it were. It sure is. That uh, the whole uh, the whole question of of how did they actually uh, come up with that uh, that solution? As you say, there's an enzyme in the stomach that, uh, without an MAO inhibitor, will will break down DMT pretty quickly, so it, uh, it never makes it through that uh, the so-called blood-brain barrier. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, the shamanic cultures have somehow, uh, uh, in their history, uh, come up with uh, uh, a way to, uh, to make that work through that uh, sort of alchemical concoction that they brew up. And it's, uh, it's a whole other mystery as to how, how they knew, uh, knew how to do it. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, well... Um I think it would have been uh, quite a laborious process and kind of deadly too if uh, it was just one plant, you know, that they did one after the other in terms mm. of trial and error. Right. I mean, 
and especially uh, you know when we take into account the biodiversity of of the of the uh, the areas where those people live too i mean there are little literally hundreds of thousands of species of plants in these uh, the combina- in order to get lucky you know uh, se- seems uh, seems pretty uh, pretty low on the probability list so yeah. Well, okay. Um, uh, let's see. Let's. Um, you know, I wanted to do one one other thing real fast about definitions. You know, we have this idea. Uh, language is such a language is such a part of this, and 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 language sometimes doesn't, in my opinion, do enough to describe some of the things that we're trying to talk about. And drugs, in particular, we have uh, we we have this one word, drugs, and we use it to describe everything from something that makes your little little toe tickle to uh, to something. For example, like DMT that that, that that borders on the divine, and so it's, it seems like definition is a little bit of a problem. And I, I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that, as far as how we talk about these things and how we classify uh, different uh, different compounds, but put them all under the same uh, uh, the same uh, umbrella and just call them all drugs. Yeah, um, it's a yeah, it's a hard thing, um, and uh, especially in terms of. Uh, the effects of these particular drugs, uh, speaking of drugs, yeah, and um, these kinds of drugs have been given all sorts of names. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most common one probably in popular parlance is the word psychedelic, um, and, the, and the clinical term for these sorts of drugs is hallucinogen. Mm-hmm. Um, some people in the... In, um, I guess the new age communities or the psychedelic communities, uh, which are, um, which are, I guess, thinking of these drugs or compounds or medications, whatever you want to call them, uh, have got inherent spiritual properties. Mm-hmm. They're calling them entheogens, which uh, uh, yes. is a complicated term, but I think it refers to generating the divine within. Yeah, we certainly uh, have that 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 root of the word Theo in there, so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some sort of God reference um, or divine reference. Yeah, I think the most reasonable term, though, is the, old, is the one that's... Uh, uh, which has um, a long history in Western culture, which is the term psychedelic. Okay. Um, that's the one... Uh, so that's the, the term I like to use. It uh, refers to to the properties of these drugs uh, to make more manifest what's, on, what's, what's in the mind. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. it's obviously a larger um, version of the mind than just our attention or our consciousness, but it, it's what uh, exists in the unconscious and the pre-conscious and the superconscious. Um, so I think a lot of the other terms like schizotoxin or psychotomimetic or uh, even... Uh, the more commonly used terms um, such as entheogens, those don't necessarily describe the full spectrum of the experience. Um, some people might get psychotic, some people might have a spiritual experience, but uh, I think a more generic term like psychedelic is more appropriate. Okay. All right. Um, you know, speaking speaking of, of that, uh, you, you mentioned earlier... And I'm pretty familiar with some of the work that w- that was going on in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, and it seemed that uh, both uh, on a on a psychological 
level and even on a medicinal level to a certain extent that, that uh, some of the research that was done was showing tremendous potential and uh, there was actually a lot of really uh, beneficial and uh, uh, positive stuff that was coming out of this work and we all know that it pretty much got snuffed, uh, which was which was why it was, uh, in my opinion, so important that you were able to get back and 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 sort of uh, put a crowbar in that door and crank it open a little ways again. But but in the first place, what, what, why did it uh, why did it get, uh, get get snuffed out the way that it did? Do you have any ideas on that? Oh, it's um, yeah, it's kind of a very powerful example of. Uh, people dropping the ball uh, within psychiatry, I guess, um, in particular, but uh, in, I guess, more in general in terms of science itself. Right. Um, yeah, these compounds were known for some time in the, in, in the scientific field uh, before they became more popularly used. Um, and as you mentioned there were a lot of very encouraging studies in uh, applying the effects of these drugs um, to all kinds of difficult to treat conditions um, such as depression, such as alcoholism, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, heroin abuse, right, um, right. Uh, well um, I mean opiate abuse like heroin. Um, but uh, once these drugs became popular and uh, People started having psychological problems within the emergency rooms in large metropolitan areas were being swamped with people who had bad trips on drugs. Right. And uh, in the hysteria, or maybe not, well, it bordered on hysteria, um, that came about as a result of the misuse at a huge level of these drugs that um, they were all placed... Uh, in a very restrictive legal category called Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act. Right, right. The most, the most restrictive we have, I think so. Yeah, it's the most restrictive category. Um, and and there was quite a lot of testimony in Washington, D.C. regarding what is the best thing uh, um, to do in terms of the public health concerns that people had. Um, and a lot of people from psychiatry who had uh, established the possible utility of these drugs uh, were also called to testify, but they they, they uh, weren't able to convince Congress to keep these drugs out of such a strict category. Right. Um, and as a result of the enormous paperwork that was involved, um, the hoops one had to jump through most investigators didn't uh, want to put in the time and also uh, I think there was quite a bit of stain that had become attached to these drugs and mm -hmm. nobody really wanted to jeopardize their careers or um, you know attract undue attention to their work uh, so people just packed up their bags and uh, went in, into other fields of research Wow, an amazing story actually, an amazing story on the brain from being exposed to things which are normally in the blood. Um, and uh, what happens is that the brain is quite, it, it, um, is, uh, yeah, the, um, what the case is, is, is uh, 
that the brain is extremely selective regarding what compounds it allows into its confines. And some of them it actually even expends energy to transport into itself. Hmm. Um, and the kinds of things which the brain does transport uh, across this thin membrane using energy uh, are things like blood sugar, specific amino acids that the brain's not able to make itself uh, for the production of protein, those kinds of things. And, and one of those compounds which is brought into the brain uh, is DMT. Um, so the brain actually expends energy to transport uh, this compound into its confines, this DMT. Interesting. And uh, I began to think about the function of this, this, this compound, uh, which seems to actually be a necessary component of normal brain function. And so I started to um, wonder more and more about this. Right, right, right. And yet it's a Schedule One drug. What, a, what, what an irony there. I guess we're all carrying, you know? Oh, yeah, it is a Schedule One drug. <laughs> I guess all of us are carrying around a Schedule One drug in our brains as we speak. Amazing, amazing. All right. Um, Okay, so uh, the next question, I guess, is the pineal gland or the pineal gland. I'm not sure what the I've heard, I've heard I've heard that name so many times over the years, and I still don't know how to pronounce it correctly. But uh, for uh, like it's a, pronounced both ways, actually. Okay, all right. So the yeah. pineal gland. Uh, this this seems to be another uh, big piece of the puzzle. Why don't we talk a little bit about uh, uh, about the pineal gland and what you think the significance of that particular uh, uh, little little acorn in the middle of our brains is. Um, it's quite a, yeah, it's, it's a very small organ. It's um, about as big as a pea, maybe, uh, or pinky fingernail, more or less. It's quite small. Okay. Um, and uh, it started off in lower animals um, as an actual kind of third eye on top of the skull, as a retina, cornea, lens, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it uh, is able to respond to light in a direct manner. Um, and as animals advanced along the uh, evolutionary sort of ladder, um, the pineal went into the brain further and further and no longer was actually on the surface of the skull. Um, and then what happened in, 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 uh, in, in terms of mammals is uh, it only became indirectly responsive to light. Um, mm. Um, uh, through the eyes and through a, a couple of other, uh, you know, kind of circuits uh, before ending up on the pineal. So, uh, in in my um, in my interest in trying to find a biological sort of basis for mystical experiences, um, my first uh, order, I guess, order of business was. Um, to maybe look at where in the brain um, spiritual experiences may possibly originate. I hadn't quite come to looking at um, the question of what the actual chemical mediator could be, but um, I began more in terms of where its anatomical location could could possibly be. And my so um, my attention was drawn to the pineal. Uh, it's got a long mystical history or right, right. esoteric. Uh, esoteric physiological history um, it uh, 
is oftentimes correlated with the crown chakra on top of the head. Um, and that seems to be, at least in terms of uh, the, the spiritual sorts of uh, practices that, um, that use the chakras as a metaphor for what's happening, uh, there seems to be, uh, in response to deep and prolonged meditation, um, an explosion of light in the brain or in the head, yes. uh, in the mind. Yes. Um, and this seems to uh, correspond to uh, at least the anatomic location of the pineal. And um, if you think of the pineal as being responsive to light, um, you know, it isn't too far a step to uh, analogize that uh, perhaps there's um, some relationship between inner light and uh, the function of the pineal. Okay. Yeah, you um, you mentioned that, that, that there's a, a sort of a rich history in the esoteric texts and some of the historical uh, references that go quite, quite a ways back, and even in some of the scientific uh, uh, texts, as a matter of fact. In, in fact, I think Rene Descartes, who many people consider the founder of modern science, uh, had uh, quite an interest in the pineal, and I think he was the one that originally called it the seat of the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um it, yeah, it's interesting about Descartes and his uh, relation with the pineal. Um, but, uh, yeah, in, in terms of Descartes' own introspection, he uh, discovered that he is only able to think one thought at a time. So he looked for a single unpaired part of the brain, a single unpaired organ in the brain, um, as opposed to what's common in all other parts of the brain, uh, for example, in terms of the pituitary, um, well, it's not really a part of the brain, but, but other parts of the brain, um, like um, the, like the medulla, let's say, has got a right side and a left side. Right. Um, uh, the cerebral cortex um, is divided into a right and to a left. All right. So um, typically we have this. So typically we have this left-right symmetry, and uh, but the, but the pineal doesn't uh, display that. Is that correct? Uh, that's true. It's unpaired. It's all by itself. Interesting. Um, interesting. It's just one pineal. Um, uh, so there isn't a left pineal and a right pineal. Okay. It's just um, a single unpaired one. Right. Yeah, and so Descartes was uh, looking at the brain and thought, well, if there's only one thought possible at a time and there's only one single unpaired organ in the brain, that is the pineal, perhaps there's a relationship um, mm-hmm. between thinking and the pineal. So at the time, and still, it's possible to to, to um, consider this prospect is the kind of divine function of thinking. Um, as far as we know, uh, this kind of thinking that humans experience is pretty unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems to have a divine property about it. Um, and so Descartes looked for some kind of biological connection between divinity and between one's own inner experience. Um, in other words, the divine quality of thought and our own uh, quality of being thinking creatures. So he uh, looked at the pineal and thought, well, perhaps it's a valve or a conduit or some kind of mm-hmm. a corridor uh, through which, uh, th- through which um, 
spirituality or divinity is kind of channeled down to us. Yeah, it sort of flows through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh, pretty, pretty, yeah. uh, pretty forward-thinking concept, actually, uh, because it, in my opinion, at least, it seems to uh, be not uh, not a bad metaphor. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think it's a reasonable one, um, especially when we do start to come up up to the limits of uh, our current paradigm of uh, our current paradigm of neuroscience. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're only going to be able to identify certain things the brain can do. Um, I think the whole question of novelty and newness and imagination, all those things, I just, I think we're going to come up against uh, some kind of barrier in terms of our understanding of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're also, you know, still struggling with this thing called the explanatory gap, which um, is... Um, a description of the problem in making the bridge between brain physiology and conscious experience. Uh, I think even in terms of commonly used drugs such as the antidepressants, the SSRIs like Prozac, right. um, it's still really impossible to uh, to correlate the changes in serotonin, let's say, to happen with drugs like Prozac, and um, you know the change in our in, in our being in our subjective awareness of reality right it's just so, such um, a, seems to be such a uh, uh, a dynamic uh, and unique situation with every individual not to mention every occurrence with every different individual set setting uh, all these things that we know are so important not to mention the, the personal physiology I mean my gosh how could you really pin it down you know um, well, it's impossible, and I, I think uh, at a certain point, um, people who are going to uh, take scientific exploration um, to the next level are—I think those people are are going to have to take into account um, non-corporeal or spiritual influences right. uh, on our subjective experience. Yeah, and uh, you know that's stuff that that's no longer really in the realm of new age hocus pocus. Uh, you know the ideas of Bell non-locality and and uh, quantum mechanics and uh, these sorts of things at least give uh, some scientific foundation for the idea that maybe everything isn't just enclosed inside the skull and that perhaps uh, uh, DMT, for example, maybe it's like an antenna of sorts or something that actually allows us to tap into one of these uh, non-local fields or something like that that's actually not within the body but somewhere uh, non-locally contained in hyperspace or whatever you want to call it. But uh, uh, it's, it, at least the brain research that I've done sure seems uh, to be pointing in that direction, that the brain is much more than just this uh, hard drive storage device, but it's also more like a transceiver or a receiver that can tune into different uh, uh, different frequencies and pull them in, pull them in out of the uh, out of the out of the ether or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that I, I think as time goes on, um, that the concept of the ether is probably. Uh, I'm going to attain some, some more popularity. Yeah, it might yeah. be called uh, um, by some other name, but just the uh, the kind of acknowledgement that space isn't empty yeah, and yeah. that uh, there's multiple levels of reality occurring at all times and passing through us at all times. Um, 
um, I think is just going to need to be incorporated into uh, our modeling of how the mind and the brain work and interact with each other. Yep, I agree with you, and in fact, I think that we're seeing that uh, in 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 many areas of science, but we're only seeing it sort of uh, peeking its head from beyond the veil and sort of uh, uh, carefully peeking out of the closet. There's still a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of opposition to change and to uh, uh, to some of these ideas. But you know, some of the ideas have been around now for a long, long time, uh, 70 years, for example, for the, these ideas of of, of connectivity and uh, uh, non-locality and these things. So I think that I think that that you're right, um, and I'm I'm sort of hopeful because uh, certainly your work has made me hopeful. That book uh, that you did is is a is a groundbreaker and very important, I think, to bring this stuff back into light uh, in this particular field that we're talking about um, and the fact that your book is published and uh, and that uh, people know about it and you and I are talking and all this stuff means that we're making some progress and I think that we're seeing that um, in some other uh, areas of science as well including areas like energy and, uh, uh, and our understanding of electricity and magnetism and gravity and things like that but uh, but yeah it's a, it's definitely a struggle it, uh, these, these, these old um, paradigms do not go lightly and I think you can certainly agree with that so yeah I um, I think that uh, we have to kind of tackle these issues head-on especially uh, the fields of psychology and psychiatry um, especially with respect to really the larger implications of the psychedelic experience um, and the implications of the existence of DMT in all of our brains. Um, right. You know, I think we really have to think about it um, right. instead of just going along, understanding the hard wiring and the plumbing, the chemistry. I think we need to take what seems to me uh, an important next step, which is taking into account uh, just the weirdness and the strangeness and the lack of really any good physical model to um, adequately model or characterize what people feel and uh, experience under the influence of a big psychedelic uh, you know, trip. Okay. Um, all right. Listen, we, we were we were pretty close to the. Uh, we were talking about mysticism and some of this older uh, spiritual stuff, and so we're we're just about to that word spirit. And I know as a uh, as a scientist and as a doctor, it, it it sometimes may be difficult to address ideas such as spirit. But as you point out, it's more difficult not to address uh, spirit when the, when when the phenomenon requires it. Uh, so. Uh, let's talk a little bit about spirit real fast, if you don't mind, and then, and then, and then I think we'll get into uh, the actual studies themselves, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the experiences, uh, the descriptions that the subjects experience, the landscapes, the feelings, the the actual interaction with other uh, worldly or other dimensional beings or creatures or uh, just all kinds of stuff. But let's let's talk about where spirit uh, lays in this whole thing. Well, spirit, um, yeah, I mean, I do describe that a bit in the book. Uh, it was my first stab at getting written down some of my ideas about <clears throat> uh, the soul and the spirit, those kinds of things. Um, you know, in uh, one of the chapters, I go off a bit on uh, 
I guess defining spirit as what is the major difference between something that's alive and something that's dead. Um, you know, the enlivening force. But, uh, you know, as my studies have sort of taken me a, a bit further afield um, into more spiritual, I guess, topics, uh, I, I think that was a pretty elementary sort of stab at uh, describing what the phenomena are. Um, but, uh, yeah, and so I think there's a number of different kinds of spiritual layers in a person. Uh, at the most functional sort of level is the enlivening element of that which sort of makes our heartbeat and our brain secrete and our skin, you know, work and those things. Um, but uh, there are things which distinguish us from other species, plants and animals, um, and that's probably by means of spiritual differences or more complex spiritual properties, um, and and some of those we got, uh, and some of those take into account uh, questions of being able to think and plan. Um, other uh, qualities involve uh, sort of our connection to the divine. Um, mm. So it, it could be that if these drugs have spiritual effects, it's primarily through their interacting with that level of the soul. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, uh, what about what about the number forty nine? That uh, forty nine. Yeah, the number forty nine uh, again has some spiritual significance, I think, and and it really struck me when I read uh, uh, about that particular experience that you had, sort of a synchronistic thing that happened earlier in your life, and then that you saw again when you began uh, uh, getting deeper into this research. But but I think that it's significant. I think it, I think it's worthwhile to talk about a little bit what you found, uh, for example, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yes. Um... Yeah, the, the whole question of uh, trying to connect all all of these dots uh, has been, uh, you know, part of the quest, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, the number uh, the number of uh, forty nine does play a role. Um, I think when I was an undergraduate and I was studying Buddhism, I had uh, Come upon 49 as the uh, it it relates to the number of it's the amount of time that the Tibetans believe uh, transpires uh, between the death of one individual and the birth of another. Um, that's supposed to take 49 days. Um, so I thought that was an interesting number. Didn't make much more of it at the time. Um, and then when I was a, a second-year medical student reading embryology, um, and I just started to become interested in the pineal gland, um, I found out uh, uh, I found out that the amount of time uh, which is required for the fetus to produce the first evidence of a pineal gland is also 49 days. So um, all of a sudden, I made this connection between the number 49 that the Tibetans uh, describe um, as the intermediary state between one birth and the next. 
Mm-hmm. It's also the same number of days required for the pineal gland to establish itself in the fetus. Wow, extraordinary. Yeah, that was a very weird thing, you know, and uh, it's, it's, you know, probably a complete coincidence. But, uh, I mean, uh, at the time it had a profound effect. Boy, you know what? I, I, maybe, maybe not, but I tell you what, I, I always think of, there was an old uh, uh, scientific philosopher, his name was P.W. Bridgman, and he said that uh, that a coincidence is something that you have left over when you've applied a bad theory. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, that we were missing something. So I have I, my, my intuition, at least my gut says says that your intuition is was right on about that. It really uh, seems to strike a chord with me. But uh, regardless, uh, that, uh, that that's a question for uh, for down the road maybe. But uh, speak, speaking of, of of babies and and uh, and 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 birth and death and this sort of stuff, is DMT present uh, in any particular? Uh, quantities at birth, for example, in the mother or in uh, in a baby. Yeah, um, it's not really been studied all that carefully. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, some of the implicit uh, questions behind that that question of yours just now. Um, yeah, I think you're referring to some of uh, the propositions I put forth regarding the role of DMT and, I guess, spirituality and subsequent um, experiences of elevated endogenous or naturally occurring DMT in people. Right, Um, the the birth experience. Yeah, in in most of the animals that have been studied, there is DMT in in the newborn creature, in the newborn animal. Uh, That's not been studied in humans yet, I don't think. I don't think... uh, People have drawn blood samples from newborns and, and analyzed it for DMT. But um, in in all of the other species that have been studied to date, um, it seems as if there is DMT in the newborn. Also, it's been established it's been established in humans and other animal species um, that the amount of DMT increases with stress. Um, mm. If uh, you're stressed, then the amount of DMT increases. Uh, levels in the urine in particular uh, go quite high um, so and I don't think it's actually been studied in um, I don't think it's I don't think in humans anyway it's been studied in the mothers okay. uh, in terms of if there's elevated amounts of DMT that occur at childbirth okay. but uh, it, it would be an easy study to do and it wouldn't be surprising to discover that uh the amount of DMT in the newborn and in the mother are quite high. Um, and so this could possibly kind of relate to some of the transcendent experiences of childbirth that people report. Sure. Um, and if one were able to remember uh, the time of one's birth, perhaps um, that was an extraordinarily psychedelic experience as well, and that may be a result of elevated levels of endogenous DMT, which uh, increase because of the, the uh, stress of childbirth and of being born. Wow. Okay. All right. Well. Um, all right. Let's let's uh, let's move on a little bit now to the actual uh, to the actual research itself. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the uh, the difficulty. Uh, <clears throat> First of all, in getting the project approved to begin with, but um, 
you, you can you can elaborate on this if you like, but uh, certainly there was a tremendous amount of preparation that went in uh, the uh, the choosing of the subjects uh, that would participate in the experiment was uh, quite an actual uh, quite an interesting part of the book actually um, uh, coming up with uh, the correct dosages that you are going to incorporate within the studies uh, all of this stuff um, is present in the book and described uh, quite thoroughly uh, but the bottom line is you get approval, you do uh, all, right. the pr all the preliminary work that you need to do to get ready and get your subjects ready uh, for, um, for the work, and then um, you get ready and you do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, and bef before we go there real fast, it, it, I, I, I was just thinking that it sure sounds like DMT is in a lot of different creatures. It, it sounds like it's in many different animals. I know it's in lots of different plants. Is it as common as I think it is? It's quite common. Uh, it's, well, it's been determined to exist in all the animal species that have been studied to date. Wow, now that is outrageous. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it's in quite a few plants. It's in... Uh, it's, in, it's probably in as many plants as it isn't in. Um, huh. You know, it's almost getting to be, uh, it's almost getting to the point that it's worth reporting that a particular plant is not contained. <laughs> I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, right, but, uh, right, right. you know, it's quite, it's quite a widespread compound in many different plants and in, in every animal species. Okay, incredible. Okay, so... Uh, so here we are. What um, uh, give us an idea on time frame? What uh, what year exactly was this? Now I, I know that the the the, uh, the work went on for quite a long time. When when did you actually begin to do the first uh, the first uh, uh, applications of the uh, of the compound to the subjects? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, it's actually been a long time since I've given anybody a drug. I was actually. Uh, Discussing that with my with my girlfriend last night, I'm uh, saying, oh, you know, it's it's weird. I've, I'm giving talks on on stuff I haven't done in ten years. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, it's it's important. It's still important, and I think the uh, repercussions of the work that we performed at the University of New Mexico are going to be felt for quite a, a long time, not just the ten years since I. I would agree fully. Drug. I, I would agree fully. Yeah, um, well, I, I, I started all of the paperwork in 1988. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, it was a pretty labyrinthine, Byzantine, bizarre process. It took two years, slightly more than two years. I uh, wrote the protocol in September 88, <clears throat> and I gave my first injection of DNT in November of 1990. Um, and we ran the studies for around five years. Uh, I think I administered our last dose of psilocybin in uh, July of 1995. Um, and we studied around 65 people or so uh, with DMT, gave them oh, around 400 uh, combined doses, you know, in a number of different studies over the span of a number of different years. Um, yeah, and so uh, we uh, we gave the study in a completely clinical research environment uh, with intravenous lines, blood pressure cuffs, temperature probes, uh, in a hospital bed, um, in a hospital ward. Yeah, it was pretty uh, it was pretty austere to say the least, but. Uh, 
Ultimately, I think the volunteers were pleased to be in a hospital just because uh, oftentimes, especially uh, the first couple of DMT experiences, uh, it is akin to dying or people experience it as the total separation of their mind from their body. And so, uh, you know, for most of us, the only time that's going to happen is at death. And uh, I think they were glad to be in the hospital because if anything went wrong, then we'd be able, you know, to work on them right away. Right. And, you know, so, um, so thankfully nothing did, but uh, um, still it was kind of a, um, you know, in, in, in a number of ways it was, I mean, it was actually comforting for them to be in the hospital. Yeah, that, uh, that that was an interesting uh, part of the book as well because we uh, anybody who's interested in the psychedelic experience knows the importance of so-called set and setting and uh, uh, being prepared both mentally, spiritually, physically, and environmentally uh, for uh, for the uh, for the experience and and setting up with lots of equipment and uh, um, and uh, a hospital. Uh, type environment initially to me sounded like ooh well that 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 would probably be uh, an obstacle uh, yeah. but uh, but but you you addressed that as well and eventually you guys got uh, got it worked out pretty well where uh, and again the subjects I think that you chose were probably a big part of that they were they were all uh, they tended to be experienced uh, had had at least some level of experience with psychedelics in the past and they were really had their act together uh, when they went in uh, uh, to take the take the dive um, that's quite true and it's uh yeah, it, it it was all through this study that I was just in in complete admiration and respect of the volunteers. It was like I couldn't believe they were doing it. It was such a difficult experience. It was the most distasteful in some ways a possible um, place for people to have huge trips. And uh, I totally admired and respected and was just stunned um you know, by the courage and the fortitude of the volunteers, I, I don't think I could have done it. Um, well, that, that that came through uh, to me as a reader as well. I was astounded, uh, uh, first of all, with your uh, frankness and honesty with them, just letting them basically make the decisions themselves. But uh, but they went at the thing full bore, and they and 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 to me, the payoff was that in the descriptions uh, and the uh, experiential evidence that they gave about what happened while they were quote unquote there uh, those experience those experiences seem to me to rival and uh, stand right up next to uh, to experiences that I have heard uh, from others that may have been in what would have been considered a much more uh, reasonable environment set and setting in which to do this uh, so uh, it uh, to me, uh, from from the uh, you know the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, and and the descriptions uh, that these uh, people gave about their experiences were absolutely astounding, and uh, as they should have been, I think. Yeah, um, it's a very interesting interaction among the specific variables of dose and set and of the environment uh, uh, in in terms of the setting. Um, the, 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 the three factors interact so importantly um, and also they can kind of turn on a dime too uh, depending mm -hmm. on uh, very rapid subtle sort 
sorts of changes in any of those variables. But um, the the most important part of the studies were the volunteers. Without them being very trustworthy, and and they were quite confident in, in us to be able to contain the experience. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They uh, were able to really take on huge doses of DMT. Um, I think one has to uh, look at any research with these drugs as, um, you know, th uh, through the eye of the dose that's being administered to people. Right. Um, before really being able to correlate or apply or um, implicate the effects in terms of a full psychedelic experience. And a full psychedelic experience is based upon the dose. Um, a few years before, well, about a year before we stopped the studies, we began some research with a drug called psilocybin that we had talked about previously. Right. Um, it's the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And we gave huge doses. They were like four or five times those reported previously in the psychiatric literature. Um, and that was because our volunteers were able to take those sort of doses because of their level of fortitude and stability and experience. And I think the kinds of states that they talked about um, experiencing were far beyond uh, what had been reported uh, in, the, in the previous literature. Um, and even ongoing studies, uh, maybe if we have time, uh, we can talk about some ongoing studies that um, have begun to be uh, under, um, undertaken uh, um, um, well, specifically with the compound psilocybin. Um, there's a Swiss study that's been going on for some years and um, the kinds of doses that they're giving are very low compared to ones that we really didn't find even close to threshold psychedelic based on the background and experience of our volunteers. So um, mm -hmm. I think before really one calls a phenomena psychedelic and the corresponding effects the result of a psychedelic experience, one really has to look at what kind of what kind of uh, amount of drug, what kind of dose uh, the volunteers were able to um, to take. Okay, yeah, it makes sense because uh, there there does uh, seem to be typically a report of. Uh, at the right dose, or at, or at that threshold dose, I guess whatever whatever we call it, there, there there are different responses below the threshold dose. But there does seem to be some sort of a Rubicon that we sort of cross. That uh, you you wrote a couple of uh, chapters uh, called uh, "Through the Veil," and they give the idea of this sort of breakthrough. And I think there was another researcher in the past, I forget his name, but he mentioned uh, the terminology. He called it "rupturing of planes." And uh, it was—it's sort of this crossover point. Um, uh, let, let, why don't we talk a little bit about this whole thing? In other words, uh, let's talk a little bit about this dose response. What happens at the lower levels? Uh, what happens at the medium levels? And when we do get this breakthrough of of planes, then uh, then 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 the real—you you mentioned fireworks before. Then the real fireworks start apparently. So right, right. <laughs> uh, um, then it gets very. Uh 
it's quite hard to relate to, quite hard to explain. We're talking about uh, 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 about the experience itself and uh, and these different dose levels uh, before we took a break there. So let's let's get back to that. There are these different dose responses apparently, and different things that accompany them. What uh, give us an idea again of what what starts to what, what starts to happen uh, at lower doses, and then and then as those doses are increased. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's quite uh, well. It's kind of stepwise. <clears throat> um, but the steps become kind of uh, the steps become kind of discontinuous though at a certain point, even though it's it's an elevation or it's increasing. Um, but uh, oh, I think it's important though uh, to kind of set the stage a bit in terms of the way that we gave DMT. Ah yes. yes. Um, you know, it's uh, it's um, smoked on the street, um, as it were, um, and it's smoked as the freebase in a pipe. Uh, and um, in terms of ayahuasca, that Amazonian brew we have been talking about, um, that's um, so that's consumed orally. Um, but uh, in terms of a clinical research study, uh, it would have been really too complicated and potentially dangerous to have people smoking DMT. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in terms of giving it in the form of ayahuasca, uh, that would be a completely different study. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the older studies that um, had studied <clears throat> on that had, um, that had uh, um, studied uh, the effects of DMT in humans, either gave it intravenously or gave it intramuscularly. Okay. Um, and so in our first two volunteers, we gave it intramuscularly, but the effects were just too slow. Um, one of the hallmarks of smoking DMT is the rapidity of action. It, uh, occurs just it begins to occur or the effects begin to occur just within a few seconds of smoking it um, and our first two DMT volunteers had experienced smoking the drug so uh, their description of the onset um, of the uh, intramuscular route of injection uh, didn't really compare with the kind of rush and onset that occurs with the smoked um, so we switched over to giving the drug intravenously. So you were so you were trying to you were trying to get as close as you could to mimic that uh, that uh, the rapidity of onset that uh, that is experienced when it's smoked in, in the typical fashion, right? Yeah, I I uh, yeah I think on that one of the powers of DMT is its rapidity of onset, and one of the most in Intriguing sorts of properties of the compound, um, <clears throat> and oh. it's also metabolized uh, extremely quickly too. It's broken down within just a few minutes. Yeah, I love uh, I, I I love some of the responses uh, uh, from from the subjects themselves. There, there seems to be this uh, uh, sort of <laughs> recurring theme where they sort of go. Here it comes, right, right, <laughs> and bang! It's like uh, pretty, pretty interesting to, to to read those responses, you know. Um, well, that's true. I mean, a number of people described it as being at ground zero. Um, they described it as being blown out of a nuclear cannon. Uh, yeah, it was just. Uh, it, it occurs even more. Well, um, it, it starts to exert effects even more quickly given intravenously than smoked if that's possible to believe okay. um, with with the smoke it starts to come on in maybe 10 15 seconds
seconds or so, but with the intravenous route of administration, it comes on within two or three heartbeats. Wow. Um, and people just aren't able to resist it. And that's one of the good things, in a way, about DMT, is that it gives you sort of a pure, unadulterated psychedelic experience. There's not a lot of overlay of people resisting or building up to it or you know manipulating it as much as one can anyway. Right. Um, yeah, um, but with the rapidity of onset of of the effects of DMT, people just uh, are really only able to behold and to hold on and uh, try and remember as much as they can of what uh, they're undergoing. Wow, incredible! All right, so um, so the uh, so the lower dose studies. Oh, um, okay, the, right. The the, uh, the smaller doses. Uh, were, uh, you know, sort of a bit stimulatory and a kind of relaxing at the same time, uh, at least with the very small dose of drug. Um, you know, in uh, terms of the, of the actual amount, um, um, our very small dose was 0.05 milligrams per kilogram of DMT. And it was it was it was actually uh, uh, the fumarate um, salt of DMT, uh, okay. which is water soluble. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be able to dissolve for intravenous use. Um, and our next step up uh, in terms of the dose was 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, people describe this as sort of unpleasant. It was kind mm. of uh, at the frictional kind of border, I guess, of uh, being able to get off but not being able to get off, and it was pretty uncomfortable. They were pretty tense, or at least a number of people described uh, an uncomfortable sort of tension. That, um, uh, but let, let me ask you a quick question. That, that sort of reminds me of uh, what moderate levels of, uh, of psilocybin will do as well, that sort of don't give you that... Uh, that full-on psychedelic experience, but it's more like an agitation or a heightened mm -hmm. sort of uh, state of awareness, but just sort of nervousness and just not very comfortable, maybe. Yeah, well, it is, you know, it isn't one thing or the other. You know, it's not mm -hmm. quite the low stimulatory kind of mellow doses, which um, people, at least in our study, felt under the, uh, the smallest dose of DMT. But uh, it hadn't quite gotten to the breakthrough point that... Right. Uh, that threshold of slipping into the the more full-blown psychedelic properties. Okay. So then we get to the full-blown. Yeah, the uh, the full-blown amount of DMT for most people was uh, on it was 0 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. It was uh, tw it was twice the threshold dose. Um, yeah, and uh, in terms of most people, that was plenty on um, that was enough a uh, couple of people described being able to admit to perhaps uh, undergo a larger dose but for a number of people they uh, said that was you know even more intense um, um, than they were comfortable with but um, you know I think it was a good high dose uh, the majority of people felt it was perfect um, some thought it was too little some thought it was too much but the vast majority felt it was uh, you know, just what they needed, just the proper amount. 
Right, and, um, and, and that makes sense to me because, again, there was quite a bit of, uh, of forethought and, uh, uh, and work that went into d- determining that in and of itself. Uh, so uh, I'd like people to recognize that, again, this, these weren't just random uh, dosages that the good doctor here decided um, sounded nice. Uh, he, he, there, there was quite an elaborate uh, uh, research uh, uh, study that went on prior to these administrations to determine what those levels were. So. Well, um, that's true. We start off with very small doses that uh, people weren't even able to feel much of anything, and then we just increased it sort of gradually. And, uh, I mean, one of the problems in this kind of work, any kind of clinical research, is you have to give a very small number of people too much to be able to determine what the amount of too much is. Right. Yeah, um, and then... uh, in our case, we gave two people just a bit too much, and they couldn't remember much of uh, their experience, and um, and so we lowered it a bit from there, and that's how we ended up with our our ultimately high dose, uh, uh, which was 0.4 milligrams per kilogram. Okay. All right. Um let, let, before we talk more uh, about, the, well, let's actually try as as well as you can. Maybe I know it's difficult when we get into these realms, but maybe we can talk in a minute about some of the descriptions of uh, of, of what people experience when they were in these uh, these deep psychedelic states. But I want to ask a question real fast about uh, uh, you guys being present during uh, the. Experience. I know you were right there, uh, along with at least one of your assistants in most cases, I think. Right. Um, and you know, there's a concept uh, that, that that goes back to the you know to the personal uh, experiential days of LSD and, and and all these other things from the 60s and 70s. And they they talked about a sitter. Uh, or a guide, and I think guide is actually a very poor choice of words because I don't think anyone's guiding you anywhere when you're in these places. But I think, uh, but I think sitter, or uh, I don't know, maybe another word that might be uh, a good word to describe what you're doing when you're there and they're in that other place, and if something comes up where they might need who knows what, some reassurance or whatever. How, how, how did that whole thing pan out when you were doing these things? Yeah, um, it, it's, a, you know, it's a complicated kind of dynamic, um, like I was talking about early on or, you know, a, a bit earlier on uh, in the interview about uh, the really very profound relationship which exists at a lot of levels between the person who's uh, undergoing the experience and the one who's made it, um, and the one who's given the drug, and is uh, in the room with that person. Right. Um, you know, it has to begin obviously with a lot of mutual respect, confidence, trust. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, caring, those kinds of those kinds of qualities. Um, but uh, there's all sorts of ways to be in a room with somebody under the influence of a psychedelic drug. Um, you could shake rattles and whistle and blow tobacco smoke. Um, you can um, you can be you know uh, laying in bed um, with uh, a uh, with headphones on and and eye shades. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can be uh, you could be discussing things with a person, uh, kind of talking with them. Uh, you could be doing some kind of body work with them. But um, it seemed as if all of those would influence the trip. Um, 
to an un- undue amount. And, uh, it's, you know, in, in our thinking about the sort of pure, unadulterated psychedelic experience, at least as best as possible, uh, you know, taking into account the clinical research environment, obviously. Um, but uh, we wanted to really kind of keep our hands off of the, the volunteers. Right. Uh, right. It was important for us that people underwent their own experience and wasn't necessarily influenced all that much by us in a kind of an ongoing way. I mean, obviously, um, they were all part of the research experiment. But kind of beyond that, I'm actually in the middle of the drug state. We really thought it would be important to just be as attentive as possible, uh, but uh, to also just keep our hands off, okay. um, both psychologically, physically. Yeah, that makes sense to me, actually. It sounds like, in my opinion, the best way to do it, just be there for... Uh, support and just to say everything's okay, basically. <laughs> if they if if they need that. If uh, if they do open their eyes or they look around and they're frightened, yeah, just say everything's fine. Close right, your eyes. And, right, right. Um, Incredible. Don't don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's something else. Okay, so, um, so what? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that then. What what are these people describing when they come back from from these experiences and then uh, let's uh, try to make a correlation between that and near-death experiences or or, uh, uh, or some of these other uh, states of mind that we don't really have great explanations for but maybe uh, are related in, uh, in, in, in some way mm-hmm. um, well in terms of a big dose of DMT, the, the most uh, striking thing is the rapidity of onset. Um, sort of starts off with a feeling of internal sort of pressure in the head and a, and a high-pitched kind of sound, mm-hmm. which um, then basically quickly builds to a crescendo and, and almost an explosion, I guess, uh, an exploding, um, a really sudden sort of bursting forth or outward Um, and uh, it's at that point within 30 seconds or so of the injection being completed that uh, people feel as if their consciousness has separated from their bodies and uh, they're in some different place Um, and that place you know it it can be deep space a lot of people went to deep space just uh, blackness and stars uh, some people uh, went back in time even to before space existed and before there was any physical matter. Hmm. Um, some people uh, found themselves being um, or interacting with other beings, with intelligent entities. Uh, uh-huh. Either they may have been angels, they may have been aliens, they may have been reptilian creatures, um, all kinds of uh, intelligent and you know, sentient kinds of, of beings. Um, some people experienced it as a near-death experience, but I think that's more sort of a description, one level removed. Um, even those with the near-death experiences underwent the same kinds of, of uh phenomenon with the separation of mind and body with 
contact with non-corporeal beings, um, ec ecstatic emotions or terrified emotions, um, the kind of acknowledgement of a whole other realm of information and of knowledge that uh, was contained in, uh, in those spaces and states. Right, and, and, and that's, that, that sort of gets back to where we were early on uh, in our talk where we were talking about the brain a little bit and, and, and the question mark about where is this stuff coming from? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, th there are experiences related that, uh, that could n in no way, shape, or form be uh, imagined or, uh, uh, by, by the individual, and the individual would have no way of coming up with this, uh, some of these uh, these things that are verifiable after the fact. So, uh, so where is you know where is it coming from? It's an amazing uh, and yeah. still a mysterious question, I guess. So, yeah, it's really the ultimate question, uh, especially when you want to um, consider the implications of uh, the occurrence of DMT in all of our bodies. But um, just in terms of working with the people in the study and trying to help them and me understand. What it was that was happening, like, um, to, um, to what sort of realms did DMT allow them entrance into? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the first obvious explanation, which was the model uh, employed in just the whole paradigm of the research study, was the psychopharmacologic one. Um, in other words, this is your brain on DMT. Right. And... Uh, and for really all the volunteers, that just didn't fly. They right. just would kind of laugh and say, oh, I mean, that's ridiculous. There's no part of the brain responsible for, you know, the perception of deep space. Right. Um, they just felt it was kind of a silly um, way of explaining what they had undergone. Um, and especially with respect to uh, some of the more kind of rattling experiences that people had of the of, of contact with beings. I mean, this was uh, really unexpected by pretty much all of the volunteers uh, that had that type of experience. They were rather skeptical of, of uh, abductions or aliens mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. even in their own previous psychedelic experience, they hadn't uh, encountered spirits or beings, those kinds of things. Um, so, um, so they weren't really prepared and to kind of help calm somebody's anxiety about them undergoing a very rattling, shocking experience of the unexpected to say, oh, it's just your brain on drugs. Mm -hmm. And that really didn't cause them to feel better, you know. Right. Um, you know, it makes me think of... Uh, uh of Terrence, uh, Terrence McKenna, uh, years ago, he used to talk about uh, that particular experience, uh, like like you're speaking of, and he made a point uh, about this dose response uh, that said that uh, that in his opinion, uh, a much f lower percentage of people who actually thought that they had had the full blown psychedelic experience actually had. He he believed that uh, that. Uh, that it did take quite a significant dose in order to make that breaking of planes, in order to get to these levels where you're talking about, where where you actually have these alien landscapes and uh, and entities and and spirits and physical creatures and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, in terms of smoking DMT, it requires a fair bit, and uh, one is disabled most often. You know, up. Um, 
Yeah, it's just hard to smoke DMT when you're getting off on DMT at the same time. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it is hard for people to inhale the full psychedelic dose. But, um, you know, in, um, in terms of other smokable sorts of tryptamines, there is a compound... Um, and it's also a naturally occurring, uh, naturally occurring psychedelic. It's called 5-methoxy-DMT, hmm. kind of a chemical cousin of DMT. Okay. And it's quite a bit uh, stronger than, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, it's uh, extremely potent compared to DMT. It's about, it's about 10 times the potency. Wow. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's not quite DMT. It doesn't have quite the same properties, but it's com- completely psychedelic. And... Um, you can smoke it quite easily. Uh, it's it's much easier to smoke the full complement than uh, uh, it is with respect to, to smoking DMT itself. Okay. Uh, it's also a naturally occurring psychedelic, and uh, a number of my colleagues were interested in me doing a study of it as well, but um, it hadn't been used in previously published human studies, so... Uh, it would have taken even longer than two years, if ever, to get approval to give people, you know, 5-methoxy DMT. It was much right. easier to, well, it, it was not easy, but it was easier uh, really to get it. approval for, uh, uh, you know, for DMT itself. All right. Well, that's uh, quite, quite a story, so... All right, listen, we're getting toward the end of our time here, so let's, um, I guess, a couple things. Uh, Conclusions? Do we have any conclusions? If so, uh, what, what, where have they taken you? And, and I guess the more relevant question, because I'm not that interested in conclusions, because I think the conclusions are sort of ongoing. But uh, I am really interested in what you're doing now, what the future for uh, for the research in general is. Um, is there ongoing? You mentioned there are some things that are ongoing, which I think maybe you can uh, elaborate on a little bit. But uh, what's uh, what's sort of the state of the state? Well, let's see the state of the state. Um, oh, the psychedelic I, state, that is. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I can maybe start off. Well, um, I'll answer the first part of your question first, uh, which was, uh, you know, in terms of uh, how things ended, I guess, uh, or what the conclusions were, which I guess sort of with a, would be the same thing. Um, yeah, I... Uh, began to entertain other possibilities for explanatory models, including a more psychological one to describe what people were, hap- were having happen, Freudian or, 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 you know, more of a Jungian model. Uh, those didn't work either, actually, and I uh, described uh, some of the details in the book. And I, I did end up um, kind of opting for the explanatory model that, you know, posited an independent existence of the places where these experiences took place, as if the results or the effects of DMT were to somehow uh, change or modify or transform the receiving characteristics of consciousness as it resided in the brain. So, um, you know, that's probably this... uh, the strangest conclusion or the one that's given me the most professional grief, I guess, which has mm-hmm. not been all that much actually in the first place. But, uh, you know, you try and talk with a, a more sort of traditional scientist about um, freestanding universe.
diagnosis. Most mm-hmm. people in psychiatry wouldn't go for it, although, as you were saying earlier on, it's becoming the, the, the mainstay of modern physics. Right. Um, and so I did start to uh, propose or hypothesize that uh, either DMT was allowing access to dark matter, dark realms, or even perhaps uh, allowing access to parallel universes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's sort of where uh, I left things uh, in terms of the book as far as what I thought about uh, what the nature of some of these experiences were. Um, I also uh, raised the issue of what is the reason that we have DMT in our bodies and why is it that the brain requires it and started to uh, muse or hypothesize a bit about the role of DMT as far as maintaining consensus reality. Um, Perhaps if it's too low a dose in the brain, as it were, um, things are dark and flat and kind of lifeless. Um, If you have um, an overabundance of DMT, either through being administered it or because of your own release, um, it can lead one into some of these psychedelic states. Uh, But... uh, kind of a narrow sort of window is required for the maintenance of everyday perceptual reality. So that's sort of where I left things um, with uh, model generating the kind of the overview, the context, or the kind of placing, uh, you know, DMT in some kind of uh, scientific philosophical matrix. Right. Well, it's it's really important that we do so, I think, because, uh, you know, just now in the the last few words you've been mentioning, you think of, uh, you know, so-called schizophrenia and uh, psychotic behavior and this sort of thing. And and, and the way the way that Western medicine treats uh, psychotics and so-called schizophrenics, um, which I believe is just sort of a catch all term, schizophrenic. But uh, uh, at any rate, perhaps. levels of uh, endogenous DMT in these particular individuals are uh, somehow not being modulated correctly, you know what I mean? And, right. Uh, and, 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 and that, of course, if you get thrown into that psychedelic state uh, in your everyday life or whatever, in the middle of this particular culture, you're in deep, deep trouble. Um, you know, if that happens in an indigenous culture, They'll take you, and within a matter of a short amount of time, you will be under the tutelage of uh, master shamans, and uh, you will be told that you're special and that uh, you're going to uh, cure the sick and that you're going to be uh, you know, taught uh, the, the, the history and the, and the, uh, the teachings of, 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 your, of your culture. But uh, in, in, in our particular culture, it doesn't quite get responded to the same way. So. Um. That's true, and that's a very important point, too, which you kind of mentioned quickly, but, um, you know, it's a very important one. It's quite, uh, well, I think it's the most important one in terms of people's contemporary interest in shamanism. Um, They think they can have altered states through drugs or induced somehow, and then uh, through that they uh, partake of what they call shamanism, but... um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of, I think it's more a case of being the other way around, is that people start off with these experiences spontaneously, and the elders of the culture, uh, you know, um, are able, you know, to um, to then steer them Mm -hmm. uh, 
um, in the development of their own powers and then with the uh, help of the plants that have psychoactive materials in them, um, they're able you know, to reproduce and control the, the phenomenon a bit more. But um, it isn't that one starts off in one's you know, shamanic training with taking drugs. It's more that you uh, have those experiences on your own, which are then you know, kind of matured and developed and steered uh, through the cultural matrix. Yep, and uh, you know, I think it also ties into uh, when we were talking about what happened in the '60s and the '70s. I think that one of the one of the one of the major obstacles that we ran into was the fact that people were beginning to use uh, these substances recklessly and without respect and without uh, uh, knowledge, like we're talking about. And with and and because of the culture itself, there was nobody here that really knew. They didn't have that master uh, to be able to, uh, to as you say, to set their compass, so to speak. And so you got people um, uh, randomly uh, having wild and probably not very pleasant experiences and without any guidance and without any, uh, any history to back it up and to teach them uh, how important and how, uh, like you say, how, how potentially powerful and sometimes dangerous these things can actually be. Yeah, um, and I still think that's a concern among people who take these substances, either you know the plants or the extracts or the chemicals themselves. Um, is you know what is going to be the context within which they're being used? Is it uh, just for one's own use? Um, is it to help other people? Is it to have a minimal or a moderate or a huge experience? Um, what are they going to do particularly importantly is uh, what the after effects are, what the implications are of what they've undergone. Um, is it helpful? Is, is it going to be helpful right. to them right. or to the world at large? Um, are they going to be changed by the experience or not? I mean, um, all of those things really... Um, Oh, they kind of cut to the chase of, you know, autonomy and compassion and, you know, social responsibility, those kinds of things. Right, right, right. All right, well, what's, uh, so what's the latest? What's on tap for you next? What are you working on these days? What's, uh, what's, what, what's going on now? Oh, uh, let's see, what am I doing these days? I'm in Gallup, New Mexico. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I have been in Taos for a number of years in a private practice, but, um, you know, I miss working in community mental health, which is what I'm doing now. And uh, the infrastructure of a community mental health clinic, I find easier, uh, you know, to work with than private practice. Uh -huh. um, but I'm only doing that a couple days a week. And uh, the rest of my time, I'm studying Jewish texts and commentaries. Interesting. To try and figure out what is going on. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I mean, uh, we, could, we could have a whole another show on that. But you know, that some some of the mystical traditions in 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 the, in the Kabbalah and some of these other uh, ancient texts that tie into the Jewish tradition and some other ones uh, are are absolutely astounding as well. So um, they're quite psychedelic, and they're, and <laughs> yes. and they're quite uh, they're quite keen on the uh, application of uh, information that's attained in those states to everyday life. Huh. Um, that's probably the thing I like the most about it. it it's extremely gritty. Um, it isn't ethereal or abstract if you get down to it. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. It's sort of like applying the psychedelic paradigm to everyday life uh, with how to wash clothes mm. and 
what to think and what to say. And, you know, I mean, obviously, wow. it's it's an area of study for me rather than of practice right now. But uh, okay. it's uh, it's a fascinating way of looking at how to relate um, transcendent states in everyday life, uh, which was probably the, one of the major questions I was left with at the end of the studies was, um, well, people have had these experiences, but what does it really mean, and so what, and how is it going to help, and uh, how can one apply the, the weirdness and the strangeness and the absolute unexpectability of what happens on DMT with who one is, you know, the hmm. rest of one's life. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, I was raised as a Jew. I was born a Jew, raised a Jew. Um, but I did spend a number of years uh, within a kind of Buddhist community, an, an, ex, an extended Buddhist community, um, for over 20 years, actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I finally ended up, you know, deciding um, that I'm Jewish, not Asian. You know, I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm white. Uh, um, I wasn't born and raised in a Buddhist uh, culture. So um, I just thought I'd return. Uh, well, also I had some problems with, with my Buddhist community and some of the um, conclusions and uh, implications of the research that I was starting to talk about and write about. Um, but uh, I thought, well, I should just return, uh, you know, to my roots to find out what's growing there. All right. Well, you know what? Uh, I've sort of gone through a, a, a similar experience, and 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 if uh, if nothing else, I've I've come to at least in a, an agreement with my own mind that 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 if uh, if if we study most of our personal traditions and if we study them deeply enough and further enough and uh, scrutinize them uh, enough that we'll end up you and me probably very close to the same place mm -hmm. and uh, and that's what uh, and, and and that's one of the things that DMT uh, interestingly enough also sort of points to this idea of breaking beyond uh, the, the these ideas of culture and um, and society and different uh, ethnicity and things like that and get right down sort of to the root of things. Yeah, well, it's the experience of being home. Um, in in um, I you know I I conclude my book with an epilogue of someone's experience, which uh, really is um, his experience is that of coming home. Finally, at last, I'm home. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I think that commonality of experience, uh, you know, it's something that resonates within us all. Okay. Well, Dr. Shoshman, I think that's a good place to finish things up. In fact, I'm going to read Saul's uh, description of what happened. I think it's a great way to finish the segment um, because uh, uh, I think Saul is who you wrote about in the epilogue. All right. And, uh, and I think that, uh, that that story is, uh, is a great way to fin finish this program. So, okay. Hey, listen, um, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. You've been an absolutely fantastic uh, uh, guest and a, and, a, and a great heart for us uh, to spend your time uh, with me and my listeners to help avail them to some of this information uh, let's uh, let them know where the book is available it's called DMT the spirit molecule it's written by Dr. Rick Strassman, S-T-R-A-S-S-M-A-N. And uh, I think I bought it on Amazon. I'm sure it's available through most of the venues, huh, Rick? That's uh, true. And also, you know, if somebody's interested in a personally inscribed copy, I have got my website up and running. Well, good. We need to give out that address and go. Yeah. 
Um, it's rickstrassman.com, R-I-C-K-S-T-R-A-S-S-M-A-N.com. Okay, simple enough, rickstrassman.com. The book is DMT, The Spirit Molecule. It's a fantastic book, very well written by a really knowledgeable man. And uh, again, Rick, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in your ongoing work. And uh, and maybe if, uh, if, if, there's, uh, uh, if there's need for it, um, uh, we can do this again sometime and talk again. So. Well, it's been a pleasure. Okay. All right, take care. Okay. We just finished up with my interview with Rick Strassman, Dr. Rick Strassman, the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule. And we've got a couple minutes to wrap up the show, and I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm going to play uh, a little bit of music in the background here. But uh, I'd like to read the closing segment of Dr. Strassman's book. And it's written by a gentleman whose name was Saul. And uh, this is a description of the experience uh, that he had at the end of this study. It goes like this. The empty space in the room began sparkling. Large crystalline prisms appeared. A wild display of light shooting off into all directions. More complicated and beautiful geometric patterns overlaid my visual field. My body felt cool and light. Was I about to faint? I closed my eyes, sighing, and thought, my God. I heard absolutely nothing, but my mind was completely full of some sort of sound, like the after effects of a large ringing bell. I didn't know if I was breathing. I trusted things would be fine and let go of that thought before panic could set in. The ecstasy was so great that my body could not contain it. Almost out of necessity, I felt my awareness rush out, leaving its physical container behind. Out of the raging colossal waterfall of flaming color expanding into my visual field, the roaring silence and an unspeakable joy, they stepped, or rather emerged, welcoming, curious, they almost sang. Now do you see? I felt their question pour into me and fill every possible corner of my awareness. Now do you see? Now do you see? Trilling, sing-song voices, exerting enormous pressure on my mind. There was no need to answer. It was as if someone had asked me on a blazing, cloudless midsummer afternoon in the New Mexico desert, is it bright? Is it bright? The question and the answer are identical. And my yes was a deeper, of course, and finally an intensely poignant at last. I stared with my inner eyes, and we appraised each other. As they disappeared back into the torrent of color, now beginning to fade, I could hear some sounds in the room. I knew it was ending. I felt my breathing, my face, my fingers, and I was dimly aware of an encroaching darkness. Were there flames, smoke, dust, battling troops, enormous suffering? I opened my eyes. You've been listening to Radio Orbit, and this is Mike Hagan. I'll be back next Monday at 11 p.m. Stick around for the Boogeyman. Curtis will be here in just a moment. And uh, thanks for listening. Take care.